1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chilai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Did you know that you can join us live in our Mumble Room? That's right. It's an interactive voice over IP chat client. It's another way that you can interact with the show. We invite you to do so. You can point your mobile client to mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. We'll take your questions, comments, or feedback on the program that way. T- is it Tiago? I believe is how I pronounce his name. From pronouncing that wrong, let me know. Tia- or, uh, Tiago, you got to jump into the on-air channel, there, buddy. I can't. Uh, <clears throat> I can't put you on um, from the uh, from the quiet listening. But if you uh, if you jump in, if you come into the on-air channel. Um, and if you need to, you can jump back into staging and, uh, and they'll help you get moved into the, to the on-air channel Then I can put you on. Let's go to the phones. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855 The email live at asknoahshow.com. Chaz joins us from New York. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Noah, how's it going? Sir. Oh, you there? I am. Yes, sir. Yeah. Things are going great. How are you doing?
2: Pretty good. Um. So, a couple questions for you. First, uh, give Steve Schmidt a high-five from me. He deserves a high-five after yeah, the Schmidt uh, show.
1: For sure, yeah. I will absolutely do that. In fact, I, w- there is a, I, I, can't, I can't guarantee it, but I would say there is a possibility that, uh, that Hed Schmidt is listening.
2: Well, now I feel really bad about getting his first name wrong. Well, I won't tell but, him. Uh, all right. So <laughs> anyway, so, as you probably... <laughs> As you've probably figured out, I'm pretty excited about Proton. I feel, like, uh, I feel like the final countdown has begun, and within six months to a year, either every game is going to be uh, whitelisted by Steam or certified by the community as being uh, playable on, on Linux, and right. then I will finally be able to get Windows off of my gaming PC. I agree. The one potential pitfall in that plan is that I still use windows as my primary blu-ray player because that's where all my rush concert videos are
1: mm, sure I
2: watch those on a r- regular basis so i'm wondering what the status of blu-ray playback is on linux are we at a level where i can boot up cody throw in a disc and press play or is it a complicated ripping uh process that involves saving things to hard drives and all sorts of crazy ask noah show type stuff
1: it is neither of those things how's that for an answer <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. After a great start. start. Yeah. So um, it, it is. It is. It is not as it is not as simple as firing up Cody and throwing the Blu-ray in, but it is not. It's not terribly complicated either. The easiest way to just play a Blu-ray in Linux, Chaz, is to use uh, something like VLC. And in VLC, it is literally as simple as clicking on File, Open Disc, choose your Blu-ray player, click Play, and the Blu-ray will play just as if it was if you've played dvds on linux it will play just as if it was a dvd so there's the there's the good news i don't typically watch very many movies on uh my computer because the i'll be honest with you i'm a very lazy human being that's really what this comes down to and i'm such a lazy human being that the thought of going to a designated place in my house and retrieving a magical you know disk like Object and inserting it into this thing and and clicking on all these things and waiting for the optical disc to spin That all sounds like a nightmare to me So what I do is I make images of all of my blu-rays and DVDs and I use that I do that using a program called brass or another program called k3b both will do the same thing But they will make an iso image of your disc and once you have an, an image of that disc Then you can load Uh, that you can point Cody to a directory of these ISO images and just click on it and it will open that Blu-ray or that DVD up. So that's one way to do it. A more popular version, the way I don't prefer to do it, but it is a popular version nonetheless, is to use a program called MakeMKV. And what MakeMKV does is it will extract the video only, uh, video and audio and subtitles and all this stuff, but it will extract only the feature film from the disc Obviously, you could extract other information, but typically you don't and you would put it into your library. And so when you click on a movie, it will just start playing that movie. Now, I prefer the image for a couple of reasons, Chaz. The reason that I prefer the image is I want an exact 100% duplication of that Blu-ray disc. So I, for whatever reason, I call me weird, I like the DVD interactive menu, I like the special features, I like the random other languages that I can listen to or watch the movie in. It sounds stupid and weird to a lot of people, and I, I'm a stupid and weird person, so that kind of fits. But I like having, I like knowing that I have not left anything behind. My DVD Blu ray collection is an exact, identical bit for bit representation of the discs that I originally bought. Thus, I have no reason to hang on to or keep the discs. At my, uh, working part time at a radio station, my boss there, Uh, was we were talking about a movie and I said here's the DVD and if I don't get it back it's really not the end of the world because I have an exact duplicate of it on my system and oh by the way because it's an exact duplicate of it I can write that image back to a disc and I'd be back where I was so for all of those reasons I that is that's how I uh, that's how I, I handle that issue if that helps you.
2: Yeah, it does a little bit and you're not weird for wanting the uh you know complete copy of the disc cuz you know as I said these are concert videos that I mainly keep on Blu-ray because they don't get released on streaming. So, you know, I want all the bonus features and the documentaries and you know, the rehearsal footage and things like that as well. Now, I might understand that the I I guess I kind of pick up on the implication that is there menu access in VLC as well, yes. and that's why it needs to you recommend the Okay, so I could Theoretically, still put a disc in with VLC and I'd have access to the menus before I started playing the movie.
1: Yep. There is no, there is no, other than the fact that you have to click File, Open with Disc, and you could actually even, if you really wanted to get fancy with it, Chaz, what you could do is you could even set it up in your system preferences so that Blu ray's always open with VLC and then even that step wouldn't be necessary. But once you click file, open disk and you choose your your uh, your optical drive, it is as if it was a Blu-ray player. And the only difference is instead of using uh, like a remote, you would obviously have your access to your air, your um, mouse cursor and you could hover over play or special features or start film or, you know, a director's commentary, whatever the other things they add there. Makes sense. Thank you very much. Awesome, Jess. Thanks for the call. Winning 855 450 noah It's 855 You can email us live at AskNOAHshow.com. Tiago joins us from our mumble room. Hey, Tiago, welcome to the Ask NOAH show.
0: Hi, Noah, and thanks for having me here.
1: Yeah, thanks for making the time to be here. I know it's uh, it's a little late in your part of the world, yeah? Yeah, it's, it's normal time for an IT guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we work late hours. If, if we've done yep. our job right, you won't know we've been there. What can we help you with? So I need I
0: need um, uh, a software that runs on Linux, preferably on Ubuntu, that manage can manage uh, an online radio. Uh, the radio it has a, like a workflow that as a playlist that fills the blanks. And every time that's that's uh, an event, a program, or a, um, the time saying the time at the at the correct hour, uh, the playlist stops or pauses, mm-hmm. and then it comes back when the event ends. And I was looking
1: at airplay, airtime, uh,
0: but it was discontinued and I need an option.
1: Sure, so when you say airplay, you mean uh, airtime? Airtime, airtime, so, yes. Yeah, so so the story with airtime, for anybody that's maybe not familiar, obviously you, you've looked into it, maybe some some other people have not. The story with airtime is something like this. Source Fabric discontinued the um, discontinued, well, they didn't really discontinue. They decided that they were no longer going to make it open source. And so the project effectively forked. And there is now Libra time, I think that's what they mm-hmm. call it or Air Libra whatever it is. there's there's an open source component, and then there is the continuation of Airtime, but they're kind of marketing as a service. Now, what Airtime is for anybody that doesn't know is Airtime is a piece of software that you can load music or you know audio files in and it will play them out at a specified time. it's a, it's a scheduling playout system essentially but it's Mm -hmm. it's specifically designed for online radio stations and it's very powerful we actually ran the the radio station keqq 88.3 fm in grand forks which this show is currently on for the longest time actually ran uh primarily on airtime because it it's just really great for putting content in there and and having it play out the problem with airtime is uh, i think you kind of alluded to this there is no really there's no manual control manual takeover i want to do like you say an event and i and at this time i want the playout to stop and i want to do these other things and i want to go back to filling up the playlist when i'm done mm-hmm. so uh, the software that we're using now is a software made by paravel systems or developed by paravel systems it's open source runs on linux of course um called Rivendell. And what Rivendell is is a very very powerful, very very powerful and capable playout system. The thing that Rivendell there, there is really there are no there's not really going to be a time where you're going to hit something where you're going to say Rivendell can't do that. It's more a function of do you want to put the time in to get Rivendell to, to to do these things. I'll give you an example. One of the things that Rivendell is is it does in our studio right here at Asnoa is it it controls the entire studio so for example at a at a specified time it sends a signal to our broadcast machine that says these are the inputs that Noah wants to use that machine then talks to the mixer and says he needs the mic he needs the phones he needs the playout system he needs the if we're doing remote stuff he needs the remote stuff configured and it sets all of those levels turns all of the appropriate channels on turns off all of the appropriate channels it loads what we call the station, or the, 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 I say station, but really my studio. It loads the log <laughs> file, which is all of the assets, so it's going to play the intro to specific time, the outro to specific time, it, it, all that stuff is there. Loads my buttons, what we call the button bar, so I can, I can fire at will uh, random uh, sound clips and stuff like that. All of that stuff is being handled by the automation system, and all of the components in the studio are talking to this piece of software. And so anytime something happens, so for example, when I, when I walk into the studio, I'm listening to whatever is going on, on, on the, uh, coming out of, of, of the board, right. Which is typically just some pre-show music. But when I turn my microphone on the, every, the whole system has to talk to each other to tell it, Hey, the speakers that are above my head need to turn off. Otherwise I would get feedback. And so this automation system is – the whole system works together so that I- anything that I – all I have to concentrate on doing is producing content and the equipment works around me. Uh, and 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 this is one of those things where we designed this entire studio to be um, top-notch. We, I mean, we didn't cut any corners. And part of that was coming up with a control solution, an automation, sh- automation solution that would handle all of these things. And Rivendell, again, only runs on Linux. You can run it on Ubuntu. You can run it on CentOS. Uh, does all of those things. And so you can set up a playout log that has all of the programs that you want to run. And you can set up a macro that says, This is my, this is Tiago's live macro. So when he clicks live, it automatically fades out the music. It automatically turns up this thing or turns off that thing and turns these channels on. All of that can be set up. And Rivendell can handle all of that for you.
0: And what about horsepower? Does Doesn't- it run on? any machine so or it, do you need
1: a Yeah, it doesn't require much. I have the lowest uh, the lowest machine I have it running on is a, a Core 2 Duo and I have it's a it's a it's a two-part solution. There's a there's the back-end server and then there's the front end that obviously the clicky buttons. Obviously the back-end server is what uh, is what actually does all of the actual horsepower. Um, and I have that running on a Core 2 Duo with the front end and no problems at all. The machine that's in here is uh, I think a 4th gen i5. Um, and obviously problems there either but the only reason that i upgraded the it actually wasn't a uh it wasn't a limitation with the um with the cpu or anything like that but the memory to load uh uncompressed wav files that are over an hour long which i need to do for the reruns of this program uh i needed eight gigs of ram and i i just wasn't possible to upgrade that the core two Duo machine that we started with so we ended up upgrading it
0: okay so if you were selling me rivendell i was buying it right now mm-hmm. so i'll give it a try <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, good. Uh, the, uh, the Make sure to give me my commission. My commission is 20%. Okay. So I hold on. Let's do the math here. Let's do Okay. Carry the one, 20% is zero. And yes. Carry the yes, one. yes. Yeah, uh, okay. So you owe me zero bucks. So if you want to. I'm I'd,
0: going to be paid like zero. So I'm going yeah. to give you 20%. No good. worries.
1: <laughs> okay. Awesome. That would be great. So if you just go ahead and you can send a check or we take debit card, Visa, MasterCard, all those things. So. Thank okay. you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I I, no, go ahead. Give me just
0: 10 seconds because I want to advertise my podcast here in Portugal. Sure. If you, I, I'm co-hosting with Diogo, this listening uh, the Portuguese Ubuntu podcast. So every Portuguese guy that listens to you should listen to our podcast is doing in our native language in Portuguese. I love so that. So
1: Everyone's welcome and step by. Oh, that's a horrible plug, man. I need the. <laughs> I need to know when the <laughs> podcast is. I need to know how to get it. Where's what's the website? Where do I download it?
0: Oh, it's podcastubuntuportugal.org dot okay. All right. Okay. So Tiago, it's
1: easy. Tiago, do me a favor. Send me a link uh, over, um, over telegram, shoot me a, a link and I'll include that in the show notes. Anybody that's out there that's listening and saying, Hey, I also want to be part, I want to listen, listening to an Ubuntu podcast in the native language um, of Portugal. I, I assume it's Portuguese. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Want to listen to it? That, that would be great. And um, congratulations on starting a podcast. I think it's a fantastic time to do a podcast. And I think it's a great service that you're doing. So thank you for that.
0: We are running it for over a year now. We are just crashed the first anniversary.
1: Okay, so this is not something new. This is this has been this has been happening. No, for no, me. no, no.
0: Yes, yes. We were just invited. Uh, I cannot talk about this yet on air, but uh, this is a project. It's an upgrade to our podcast, the radio. So this is part of my question. Was this upgrade part of it?
1: Tiago, if you have any other questions, you feel free to give me a call back, and I'd be happy to help you. I, I love radio. I love broadcast technology, and I love podcasting.
0: I'll do that, don't worry. Okay, thank you. Thank Thanks. you for everything, man.
1: Thanks so much. 1-855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624, email live at com. Eric calls from Kansas City. Hey, Eric, welcome to the Ask NOAH show.
2: Hey, Noah, how's it going?
1: Excellent, man. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty well. So you are
2: just talking about podcasting, and that's that's great if you've got your studio and everything <clears throat> soundproofed and uh and you've got your nice cozy desk chair. Well, I've got a slightly different problem this week. I'm heading off to Denver to the Libre Application Summit hosted by the Gnome Foundation. Nice. And I'm thinking about doing some conversations back and forth with some of the uh, some of the folks like Elementary OS and and some of the other folks that are going to be there uh, to kind of document on a on a blog or on a podcast or, or on a video blog. Um, so I've I was recommended. Uh, the Zoom H1n handy recorder um, to uh, to be a mobile recording device. I wanted to know if you if you had one, if you had any thoughts about it, or a different recommendation.
1: Sure, I don't have the H1. I do have the H3 and the H4. Um, I started with the my my thought process. Eric went something like this: If I'm going to buy the uh, a recorder, I'm going to buy the best one money can buy. And so I started out with the uh, I. Or, no, it's not H4. H5, maybe? Hold on, which one do I have? I have I have the H5 and I have the H6. Excuse me. I have the H5 and I have the H6. So I started with the H6 and I thought if I'm going to buy a recorder, I'm going to buy the best recorder money can buy. And so I bought the H6, which seemed to be the best money that, or recorder that money can buy. The issue that I ran into very early on was that it is such a complicated recorder that it actually kind of outsmarts itself so it's got this built-in matrix mixer thing and it's got four individual inputs and it's i'm sure it's great if you want like a little mobile studio and you could go with the h6 it's a great recorder my problem is i don't want any of that i want to walk up to somebody shove a microphone in their face record an interview and then it goes back into audacity i clean it up a little bit and then we air it through rivendell um and and it plays out over the show. So I don't need any of that stuff. And so I ended Chris had the H five and that was a much simpler recorder. And the second thing that played into that decision was when we go out and do things together, it's very nice when you have the same equipment because all the button layout is the same and he can use mine and I can use his. And uh, he didn't like the fact that I bought the same one that he did. So he dunked it in a thing of ranch trying to destroy it. And it, it, but all of those things only happen if you have, a if you have the same model equipment and so that's why we ended up that's part of why when wound up doing that decision now the h1 if i'm not mistaken has almost all of the same features that my h3 does as far as the basic record functionality i think the, the only thing it's missing is it doesn't have dedicated mic inputs right or if it does they're like 3.5 inch they're not xlr i'm trying to google on the fly Sorry, guys. This is what happens when you have live radio. Yeah. Okay. So it looks like yeah it it looks like it's primarily designed to use the built-in microphone. Um, I will tell you this: uh, having not used the H one, I have I have very high respect for Zoom products, and I have even higher level of respect for Zoom microphones specifically because they make very, very high-quality microphones that will do a very good job. So 99 bucks on an H1, I think that's a great investment, especially if you're planning on doing post-production with it, if you're just going to record the interview and then play it back later. Okay, great. Awesome. Anything
2: else? I think that'll do it today.
1: Awesome. Thanks for the call, man. 1-855-450-NOAH, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at Ask Noah Show. Dot com Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. There are a wide plethora of devices and toys you can buy for doing uh, broadcast or production uh, in the field on the fly. And a uh, lot of really good ones. So i the, the H5 is, is kind of a staple for me. The other one that I use, I don't have the model number off the top of my head. Um I will see if I can grab it and throw it in the show notes though for you. Uh again, podcast.asnoashow.com, you can check out the show notes there. But it is a Sony recorder. It's a Sony dictaphone. It was actually recommended to me by a doctor who does a lot of trans uh who does a lot of uh, dictations on it. And when I listen to the uh audio recording, I use a dedicated um It's a microphone It's the industry standard for doing interviews. And we've used that microphone for years. I've used it for years on JB. And um, when I listened to the audio quality of that little Sony dictaphone as compared to my H5 with this dedicated microphone, and I saw that there really wasn't that much of a difference. I ended up picking one of those up and that actually sits inside of my computer bag at all times. So if there's if I run into interesting people and say, oh, you know, I really want to talk to that person. I would really like to check this out. I have the option of doing so and doing a interview with them, um, you know, without having to get real involved or without having to drag a bunch of equipment out. So and it's been a lifesaver a couple of times. One other thing I just want to add uh, real quickly, I I have I have asked in the past to get a developer from the guy who actually wrote the software, uh, from Rivendell, on the show. If that's something you guys would be interested in, in can you let me know? Drop me a line at live at com. I have gone back and forth with it because on one hand, this is some of the most powerful software you will ever see on Linux. We talk all the time about converting people to Linux and getting people on Linux and 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 showing people Linux and showing people the advantage of Linux. Do you want to know one industry that is already on Linux, and there is you don't, there really isn't a lot of conversion to be done? Broadcast, specifically radio broadcast. I have done the Ask Noah show in radio studios all across the country, and a large majority of them are already running on Linux hardware, are already running Linux software, and Rivendell specifically. It seems to be the industry standard uh, for broadcast automation playout stuff and uh, i reached out to the developer and i you know i just said tell me the story about this and he explained you know they basically developed this software for a large broadcast entity and it just took off like gangbusters and people just went man this is so reliable we don't ever have to restart our on-air machines and it has all the features that we need for professional broadcast plus it has all the automation features to tie into a bunch of other stuff It's just a really really rock solid great piece of software and it's completely open source. You buy this system, because they sell systems, right? If you buy this system, it's like a $5,000 system. And radio stations all, the, all around the country, all around the world, really, because it's not just the United States, are paying $5,000 for this software, for these systems, because they are that good. And if you're a geek, if you're a nerd, and you know how to use GitHub, you can go download the software and compile it on your own machine. $5,000 thousand dollars of so- worth of software and you can compile it for free just for being a nerd because the guy who wrote it is a nerd and he's a great guy and uh, and just if you come to Grand Forks, I, I'll sit you down in this room I offer off air to give Tiago a demo of Rivendell because uh, it, it's one of those things that when you see the power of it when you see the power of this software and what it can do for broadcast, there is no way I'll ever go back to doing a show without an automation system like Rivendell. No way, because it just, just it just makes life so much easier. Again, join the conversation, 1-855-450-855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. I got a private message, I won't say who it's from, but the question is, why are you asking me to rip with MKV? And the the that, that comes from a gentleman who has a couple of movies that I wanted to borrow from him. And uh, we we're trying to facilitate how, the, the easiest way for him to send them to me. And I said, well, here's the thing. I just rip them to MKV, send them over to me. I'll watch them. Then I can just delete them when I'm done. Uh, it's a lot less expensive than trying to mail physical copies of the Blu-ray or DVD. And uh, the answer to that question of why, uh, it, why I would want uh, MKVs over the full ISO is because when it's coming off of a disc that doesn't have any special features, when really the only thing that's there is the feature film, the only thing I'm interested in is the feature film. It doesn't really matter, right? If it was a permanent archivable thing that I was, you know, I wanted to add to my collection, I was going to keep it forever more. Yeah, I would do an ISO, but then I would want, you know, all the special features, all the languages, the DVD menus, all of that stuff. But if I'm getting rid of most of that, all I really care about at that point is just, you know, the feature film, which is like, again, a lot of people really like that. And if you use, uh, um, not Cody, what's the other one? Um, Plex. If you use Plex for your media management, you have to use MKVs because it doesn't support ISOs. So, which is one of the reasons I'll never use Plex. That and its closed source. But even if it wasn't, it doesn't support ISOs. And so my thousands and thousands and thousands of movies would be unwatchable, which is, you know, not going to work for me. Washington Post. This is not a news source we talk about very frequently on this show. But uh, we're going to talk about it today. By the way, if you want to join our interactive mumble room, ping me in the chat room, irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting, and I'll bring you in. I noticed there's a couple people in there. Hey, mumble room, glad you guys could join us. If you have anything to say, just uh, speak up in the chat room, and I will uh, pot you up, and we can have a conversation. Washington Post wrote an article about Google's new Titan key called What You Need to Know About the Google Titan Security Key. And if you haven't heard, Google has released a new piece of hardware that's going to make your account more secure. It's called the Titan Security Key. And it's designed to be another layer of protection for online security. But this week, the company has uh, faced a lot of criticism because their manufacturing partner, uh, Fiation, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is manufacturing and producing this key in China. And of course, the problem with producing the key in China is that a lot of security concerns and security experts, including Adam Myers at the security uh, firm CloudStrike, um, basically said this is a huge problem, and it leaves Google open to infiltration by hackers or the Chinese government during the assembly process. If you're going to have a piece of hardware specifically to enhance security, you probably want to make that piece of hardware in a secure environment just a thought right but what what was really aggravating to me is this discussion is is being so misrepresented and the reason that it's being misrepresented is because sometimes we let marketing get in the way of the truth and i have seen that happen multiple 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 times over the course of my career and it drives me nuts I remember the very first time I became aware of this idea of marketing versus the facts, and it was the VHS and beta. Beta was a better alternative. VHS was the marketable alternative, and so they went with VHS. And it has driven me nuts ever since. And, you know, neither of them matter anymore, and I'm still upset about it, which says something about my personality, I suppose. But the reason that I say this discussion is so misframed is because... Google's brand-new state-of-the-art security key that they're so proud of is using the FIDO standard. The FIDO standard. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? If you are a listener of the Ask Noah show, the word FIDO, or the acronym FIDO, should mean something to you because we have talked about it ad nauseum on this show. FIDO is a universal two-factor authentication. And what uh, the FIDO U2F standard is... Is a way for uh, all of these various services, like Facebook and Google and Twitter and any of the other any any service, to be able to work with various hardware manufacturers to provide two-factor authentication. Now, I'm guessing that the vast majority of you, if you're listening to the Ask Noah show, you probably know what two-factor authentication is, and you probably know what FIDO is. And you, I, nothing I'm about to say, I haven't at least touched on before. The idea of two-factor authentication is very simple. It goes back to a security principle of something you have and something you know. The best example I can give of that is the debit card. The debit card has something you have, the card itself, and something you know, the PIN number. One is useless without the other. So if I steal your debit card and I don't know your PIN, I can't use the debit card, which I've stolen from you. If I see you type in the PIN, but I'm not able to obtain your debit card from you, the PIN is useless. you have to have both the something you have and something you know? And that security method has proven to be wildly successful at thwarting, if not entirely eliminating most attacks. It doesn't get around social engineering, which we can touch on in a second, but it does get around the majority of attacks. And so the FIDO ut 2 f standard was... A standard that came out by Google, I might add, they were a principal designer in this process to make it so that it was easy for all of these companies to implement uh, universal two-factor authentication. And what was one of the first companies, do you think, to come out with the FIDO U2F compliant key? YubiKey from Yubico, which is like one of my favorite products ever. And if, again, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you've heard me talk again, probably at nauseum about the YubiKey. The YubiKey is a hardware based two factor authentication device also supports the U2F standard. And has been proven time and time and time and time again to be one of the most secure devices ever released. And the one time that they had what I would describe as a minor security flaw, they offered either the, if if there was a if there was a way to fix it, they fixed it. If there wasn't, they offered you a replacement key, and you just got a new key. Now, not all of the versions were affected, so I tried to get brand new keys out of them. They went, nope, sorry, we were able to fix yours, so uh, you don't get a new key. Absolutely a phenomenal piece of hardware. The thing that bothers me about this, other than the fact that Google has released this new key and it's supposed to be the second coming of Christ, so to speak, is that the price of this Google security key is $50. Do you want to know what the YubiKey U2F key is? $20. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Less than half the price you can buy a Yubico U2F compliant key and do all of the same things That you can do with this brand new second coming of Christ Google security thing that, you know, is made in China. By the way, do you want to know where Yubico are made? Yubico makes their security keys in two places. The U.S. ones are made in the U.S. And the ones in in Europe are made in the ones that are for Europe are made in Sweden. So and, and, they've you know, two countries, I mean. I guess you could go. I guess there's probably an argument to be made about how secure making a security key in the US is, but you could buy one of the ones from Sweden, I guess. Sweden, very well known for respecting privacy and security and all of those kinds of things, right? With the $50 model of the Yubike, and Chatrim is talking about this right now. They said, um, uh, I don't see another mobile, uh, I don't use another mobile OS, BQR low end, don't bother with them at least not with the lower end. Okay, so they're talking about another uh, another model. What I thought they were going to say or what I thought they were asking, which I want to touch on, is the various different models of the Yubikey. So the starting entry level one is a $20 U2F standard. We'll do all of the same things to the best of my limited research that I was able to do on this new product that Google has come out with. Does all of those same things for 20 bucks, okay? With a more advanced one. So if, let's say you go to the $50 model, which is the only model that I have of Yubikey things that you get with the YubiKey, not only do you get the U2F standard, but you get the NFC, so I have the ability to authenticate two-factor authentication on my phone. I It also supports SSH, so I can store a... Uh, a it, it acts as a PKCS 11 provider, and I can actually use it as a smart card to authenticate into an SSH system. So all of my computers, when I SSH in, is SSHing using my YubiKey. And, and the YubiKey never gives up the private key. So it's a write-only device. The only thing you can do is destroy the device, destroy the key that's on the device, which makes it remarkably secure. If I ever fire an employee, because all of our guys at AltaSpeed have, and girls, have YubiKey's for uh, all of their authentication. We use it exclusively. And the reason that we do that is when we go into a, uh, a, a, a what we call sensitive clients. So a client that has uh, high security needs. We only put YubiKey, I mean, or we don't use standard SSH keys, we only put keys into the servers for SSH access. Now we can track which YubiKey was used to authenticate in. If we ever terminate an employee, I can immediately ask them to surrender their YubiKey. If they do, I know that there is no possibility that they could have duplicated those keys because you can't extract them off the device. People have tried, you'll just destroy the device. It's not possible. In fact, I have a running bet with a a member of the Ask Noah Show community who likes to challenge everything under the sun. If he can can use my YubiKey to authenticate into any of my servers, I'll give him 500 bucks because he can't do it because it can't be done as I trust YubiKey. But the point is, if I can get them to surrender the key, I know that it couldn't have been duplicated. And if they don't surrender the key, then I can just go in to our manager and wipe out that specific uh, YubiKey out of the system and void it and start over absolutely fantastic device chat room is talking about pam authentication yubikey obviously supports pam authentication pam authentication is nice because it allows you to do some of the local authentication into a machine so for example you could use a yubikey to log into your system without having to uh actually set anything up yourself it essentially works like a cloud service so to speak which You can imagine where where I fall down on that. Not a huge fan of it, but it is what it is, and it is an easy way to set something up. And so if you're up against a brick wall, it is a way to get something done. Um, I have seen people use YubiKeys to store insanely long passwords and then spit them out as encryption keys for hard drives. The, uh, the YubiKey also supports something uh, called presence detection, which I really like. So let's say, for example, my laptop has a YubiKey permanently installed into it. I have two, well, I have three total. I have one that sits in a safe at home. I've got one that I wear around my neck and I've got one that is permanently installed into my laptop and uh, they call it the nano. It fits into the USB port and um, is flush with the outside of the computer. Now, the wonderful thing about the Nano is it supports something called presence detection. So let's say you, I'm on the air right now, and you know I'm distracted, and you hack into my laptop. And let's just say, let's just say, because you you happen to find out my PIN, and because you can access my laptop, you kind of have the something I have, which is my YubiKey, because it's in my laptop, and you have access to my laptop, and you kind of have the something I know, which is my PIN, right? Wrong. The YubiKey will will thwart that attack by requiring the user to physically touch the outside of the YubiKey. So when it prompts for authentication before I can actually enter the PIN and authenticate into a server, I have to physically touch the side of my computer. And that prevents somebody from remotely triggering a YubiKey. They are just an absolutely fantastic device that will do 10 times more than this Google Cloud whatever thingy and... The, 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 the comparable version costs ha- less than half the price. And if you're willing to spend the extra money, you get a whole plethora of features. So all that to say, and by the way, Yubico hasn't paid me a dime to say any of this. It, it's just a really fantastic product that I really enjoy talking about because it has saved me thousands of dollars in maintenance alone, not to mention headaches and all of those other things. Just an absolutely fantastic device. My Bitcoin wallet secured with my YubiKey. Why do I not have any hesitation to say that on the air? Because you'll never be able to get it. You won't even be able to get the YubiKey out of my hands, probably. And if you can, it's useless without the pin. And by the way, you get the pin wrong three times, the YubiKey will self-destruct. Good luck. omgubuntu.co.uk Headline, Dell unveils its cheapest XPS 13 yet. The Dell XPS 13 line, particularly the developer edition preloaded with Ubuntu, is fast, well-engineered, and is a total dream. But it's also expensive. So, as a cost-conscious consumer, I'm pleased to see that the Dell newcomer is a lower-priced Dell XPS 13-inch model that, on paper, sounds like a great all-around machine. Unveiled at IFA 2018, a tech show taking place in Berlin, Germany, the Dell XPS 9370 starts at just $899, which makes it one of the lo- which makes it the lowest-priced XPS model to date. Naturally, there are some compromises, specifically in the processor. The laptop, powered by a dual-core Intel i3, eighth-generation, four gigabytes of RAM, and has a 128-gigabyte SSD. It features a 13.3-inch 1080p display. I know what you're thinking. An i3? Why is that guy excited? Don't be sniffy about the i3 unnecessarily. As PC World notes, an eighth-gen i3 is likely to be just as fast, perhaps even faster, than a seventh-gen Core i5 found in the earlier XPS models. This is partly due to some innovative cooling by Dell and a max boost in turbo frequency ver- provided by Intel. The i3 also provides lower power requirements, which means that the laptop loses in terms of raw- what the laptop loses in terms of raw performance, which more than make up in battery life. Beyond the internal specifications, everything else remains exactly the same as the XPS previous models. Super thin, super light, premium engineering and top tier build quality. And the best part is priced at $899 US. We get, I'd say, well, if you listen to the show on any regular basis, we probably get the question of what Linux laptop should I buy maybe once every couple of months, right? I love Dell as a company. Having been to Dell, having seen what the what the internal company structure is like, I love them as a company. But I also particularly like the XPS. I have personally sold a bunch of these, not the specific model, but a bunch of the XPS series. My dad... Uh, when I showed him uh, a, a client's XPS that they had ordered, uh, he immediately said, I want the best one money can buy. Deck it out. I want the nicest XPS model loaded with Ubuntu that money can buy. And so we decked the thing out. I mean, he bought a 30, 30 I don't remember, $3,400 computer, I think. It was a really, really nice machine. And, But he lives on the thing, and he's going to live on the thing, and it probably will last him seven to 10 years. Because he doesn't upgrade his computer that often, and frankly, he's probably not taxing even a tenth of what that machine is capable of. The issue that I've always run into with XPS when recommending them is, I can buy a ThinkPad for four or five hundred dollars less than well, previously four or five hundred dollars less than the XPS, and I can get the same internal guts and arguably a little bit better uh, robustness in as far as build quality goes. It doesn't necessarily feel as nice because it's you know, obviously going to be made out of plastic instead of aluminum. But if it falls off my bed in the middle of the night or I shove it off my bed or it falls off a ladder, it just bounces, it closes up, and I pick it back up and it's fine. The thing is like a tank. It's virtually indestructible. So we get people all the time that say, what could I buy that would be a really solid Linux machine? I'm really happy that the entry-level price is $900. bucks. we are officially below the MacBook with what I would argue is a better build quality with the MacBook, certainly a better user experience when you're talking about Ubuntu over macOS, and certainly better support when it comes to Dell over Apple. And I can say that because I've worked with these people directly. We've been a Dell partner since the day that Altospeed opened in 2009, and we've never had a serious problem with them. They've always worked really hard to do right by our customers. And what this XPS line means to me, and you actually heard this back in an interview with another gentleman that purchased a Dell XPS and came on to give us a review. I think that was a precision series. Um, Very similar machine, though, came on to give us a review about this. The this machine is a no compromise laptop. It is an absolute no compromise laptop. And if you are in the market and you want to spend some money and get a a no-compromise machine, this is the computer that you get. And so to bring that price level down to an affordable price that the average home user can look at and say, yeah, I'd spend $900 on a laptop. That's not an unreasonable thing to do. We know that's the case. We know that's the case because... They're already doing that with the MacBook. The the MacBook 2015 is a great example of this. That is a horrendous, terrible excuse for a computer. The MacBook 2015 ran at 800 megahertz unless you put it on some special cooler to cool the thing down. And then they, they have the audacity to brag about the battery life. Look, it lasts 13 hours. Yeah, if I ran my computer at a quarter of its speed, I bet it lasts 13 hours too. My ThinkPad lasts easily that, maybe a little bit more, granted it has two batteries in it, but it lasts easily more than that and it's a full speed i7. So don't give me that nonsense. Don't give me that crap. The XPS, I don't know if you... You caught it, it we'll have the article linked in the show notes, but they've done a lot of stuff to tweak the cooling and to get not better battery life and keep the processor ramped up. And that's with an i3. no 855 450 The email live at Chris calls from West Virginia. Hey, Chris, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how you doing? Good, man, what's up? Hey, uh, I was listening to you, uh, I think it was the first or second caller talking about the DVD rips, and yep. you and I had discussed before about uh, ripping an MKV. Right. Uh, so why are you saying that you take complete ISOs when the discussion you and I were having? What's, what's the, I guess the better question would be, why take the complete ISO instead of the MKV rip? The other way around. Why take the MKV instead of the complete ISO? is what you're asking right 6 one half of the other yes one or the other yeah. the, the 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 reason chris or my answer to that would be if if the if the movie is well there are two things is the there are two questions i would ask is the movie coming from a source that has all of the features to begin with. So for example, sometimes I'll buy Redbox discs and they sell them for five bucks or whatever. But those discs are specifically for rental purposes. And because they're specifically for rental purposes, they don't contain a lot of the special features. In fact, in in lieu of the special features, they actually have a message that says this disc only contains the feature film. If you want the special features, go buy the disc. And so if I've legally purchased a $5 disc off of Redbox and I want to rip that into my collection, there would be no reason for me to rip the whole iso because there's nothing there other than the feature film anyway so i would just take the uh, take the mkv and i'm sure some of them probably have all the whole disc and some of them don't i don't bother with it if, if it if, if it's a disc i purchased from redbox or any rental store for that matter i'll just i just rip the mkv the second consideration is is it a movie that i'm just borrowing from somebody and i would be legally prohibited from uh from retaining possession of it so for example if you were you're telling the story earlier about how you're talking about perhaps ripping some movies and sending them to me it'd be unethical for me to keep them so because they're just going to exist in my collection for a little bit and then i'm going to delete them when i'm done watching them as if i was borrowing the film there's no point in sending an entire iso just the mkv would be enough because i can watch the movie i get the premise of it and then i'd you know get rid of it that makes sense okay that makes sense i
0: suppose
1: Cool. Thanks for the call. 1-855-450-NOAA, 855 The email, live at com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Uh, TechMav in the chat room says, guess I'm going to have to experiment with U2F and maybe kill off the OTP slot. No, <clears throat> you don't have to, at least not with YubiKey. Uh, you can have U2F and OTP enabled at the same time. Um, in fact, the way that... Um, I- I'd have to look into this exactly how... Uh, uh, I can't do it on the air, but the, 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 what OTP is one-time password. So basically Yubico has their own servers and those servers um, can generate your key generates based on a hash, a one-time password. It's different every time there's no way to predict what the password is going to be. The server has the matching algorithm to that one-time password system. And so the server can generate simply a true false flag and basically say, yes, that is a valid key. No, that is not a valid key. So an example of how that would work in practice is you don't have any development experience, you don't know how any of this stuff works, you just want it to work. And so you plug the key into your computer and you point your service whatever it is at Yubico server and say I want the I want this uh, I want my server to watch Yubico and when a user inserts their key just tell me if that's a valid user or not. Yubico server can do all of the processing and hashing and algorithms and all of that and just return a value to your server that says, yes, that's, that user is authenticated or no, it's not. Chatroom responds with not the same as PIV or GNU-PG. No, it is not. That is, they are, that is different. The U2F standard is different than the PIV slot. The PIV slot is essentially the smart card emulation or the um, PKCS11 provider. That's what that PIV slot is. And you're right. With the PIV, that does occupy. So you get two slots in the, Yubi, in the YubiKey. And you can set them to do whatever you want. You can set them to be one-time password. You can set it to be um, a static password. So I, like I was saying, there are some people that will store like a 400 character password in their YubiKey. And so it's basically, it, it gets rid of the something you know but it's the something you have. So you physically have to plug the key in and type it because there's no way you could possibly memorize a whatever 500 character password. And so that's one of, but that occupies one of those two slots. And the, the, my best of my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, The best of my understanding is that FIDO U2F standard does not occupy one of the two slots. It's just a feature that's enabled. And I say that because inside of the Yubico configuration utility, I have to choose on my slots. Do I want it to be one-time password, static password, disabled this, that, or the other? On a separate screen, I can enable or disable the the, the FIDO U2F standard. So take that for what it's worth. I haven't actually tried. I have a separate key for my uh, FIDO U2F stuff. I have the little blue one, the one that we're going to link in the show notes. The reason I have a separate one is it's $20, so I have a lot of the little um, U2F keys because they're cheap. My actual YubiKey that I use for daily stuff is not connected to any sort of cloud service in any way, not the one-time password, nothing. Um, It just uses local authentication. That just makes me feel better that I know that all of those cloud services are totally disabled from the key. And it's probably me just being paranoid. So, I, you know, take that for what it's worth. But that's what I do. Again, another article from omgubuntu.co.uk. You can join the conversation at one 855 450 855 Join our interactive mumble room at mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. You can ping me in the chat room at irc.geekshed.net, pound Broadcasting. Let me know that you're in there. This is a fun article. I like this. Headline. Run Windows 95 on your desktop as an Electron app. Fancy- oh, you know what? Actually, but before I get into this, this, this is pretty cool, though. The idea that you can run Electron, or you can use Electron, rather, to run Windows 95 on your desktop, essentially with the hacked series of Java together, you can get Windows 95 running. That's cool to me. We're going to talk about that in a second, but we go to the mumble room. Hey, 2-bit, what's up? That's you.
2: Second, I was on the wrong program. No worries. How can we help? So, I got a question. I took an old uh, Pentium 4 computer, plugged a bunch of uh, network interface cards in it and turned it into a pfSense router. Nice. Problem is, I found if I plug two gigabit ethernet connections to it, it powers off.
1: Yeah. The the, the reason is you the there is a you're the reason for that is, is you are ex, you are likely exceeding what the PCI bus can handle. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was kind of wondering that. Yeah, I mean, the, the PFSense, is a, for those of you who don't know, PFSense is a router distribution that you can install. It's a BSD-based distribution that you can install on a computer to essentially repurpose an older machine, or a newer machine, as a router. Um, but obviously, they do have limitations. W- what I would suggest, do you have any budget for this project at all? Uh, currently, no. What What I would suggest, if if you ever can scrape together some money... Um, and you know, again, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't for you, but there are, uh, what they call router appliances. And so basically what they are, are devices that have been pulled out of uh, production and uh, some of them shipped with, um, there's all sorts of router distributions, right? Everything from uh Fortinet, um, to obviously, uh, there's just a lot of them, but, um, these devices I'm just looking on eBay, uh, one selling for 58 bucks. One is selling for 80 bucks. Uh, here's one for 40. Uh, The nice thing about these things are they're basically little tiny Atom boxes. But so, for example, here is uh, here's one. This one is 40 bucks plus four dollars shipping and handling. It has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, has eight, nine, ten. It's got ten. It has ten gigabit ports on it, plus a console port. And uh, the ports are labeled. So like port one is labeled WAN. port two is labeled DMZ. Then you've got LAN one through four or sorry, LAN one through eight. So it's the 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 physical layout of it is structured thus that it would be a router like device, right? And so the nice thing is once you set up those interfaces in pf sense to represent what they're labeled at at the back of the box for 40 bucks, you would have yourself a, a in a a a, a, a a computer that is designed to do all of those things that you wouldn't have to stack network cards. But I, I mean, I totally get, dig what you're doing. That's, that's cool to repurpose an old machine. And the fact that you can drag out some life out of an old P4, which you totally could, if it was just like two network cards, more power to you. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question. I appreciate it. One other thing you could, you could consider doing is uh, with the, with like with the P4, um, is is you, you really if you have two ports? Uh, again, all depending on what you want to accomplish. But for starting out, if you have two ports, you got a WAN port and a and a LAN port. That's that's generally enough to to get the job done. Um, you do lose some of the more advanced features. Like it is nice to have DMZ. I like to have uh, two different networks in my house. I've got what we call the family side and the guest side. And so the guest side is totally segregated from the, from the family side, those kinds of things. But uh, Warhead in the chat room points out <laughs> P4PF sense router, a.k.a. an ambient heater. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of truth in that. 1-855-450-NO, it's 855 the email live at AskNoahShow.com. Again, running Windows 95 as an Electron app, a developer by the name of Felix Rosenberg has resurrected Microsoft's ancient OS using the power of Electron, a cross-platform app and development framework. I put Windows 95 into Electron app, and now it runs on Mac OS, Windows, and Linux. It's a terrible idea that works shockingly well. <laughs> And so we're taking his fake experience or something skin to look like the real deal and the full-blown Windows 95 experience replicated with all of the apps and games that the cruft of the OS is famous for, including Microsoft Paint, Notepad, and a ridiculously early version of Internet Explorer. Wondering if it's possible to package and run an entire OS inside of an Electron app? All props go to the V86 project, which promises x86 virtualization in JavaScript running in your browser. Admittedly, Felix's Windows 95 Electron app is simply more of a novelty than a showcase practical way to run old school software, but I have to admit it runs better than it probably should. Playing around with the old version of any operating system is always a hoot, even if you lack the nostalgia factor. I hadn't used Windows 95 at the time I installed this app. What I found interesting, or rather odd, was the was the best part of a decade ago. It's similar to successive releases in Windows and our formulative version. JavaScript. Is there anything this can't do? I... I really got a kick out of this when I was looking at it and uh, in fact went to to run it myself because I just I had there's a soft spot in my heart back in the days where Windows got better. Like when we went from Windows 3.1 to Windows 95 for those of you that were back in that era. That was a major improvement. When we went to 95 to 98, that was a major improvement. And we went to 98 to 2000, man, heads rolled. It was so cool that, you know, you had this new NT kernel and things were more stable and things worked better. It was just a fascinating, awesome experience. And then, I don't know, somewhere in there shortly after, then Linux came around, I guess. And then it stopped being as cool because Linux works so much better. And then Windows turned into Fisher-Price, and then they turned into Fisher-Price with less functionality, and now they've turned into Fisher-Price with less functionality in cloud. So you've got that. But the fact that you can run an entire operating system inside of Electron, I, I argue, is bigger than just novelty, right? Because if you can, in fact, emulate effectively an x86 operating system inside of an electron app thus inside of your browser imagine the possibilities for quote unquote cloud computing when i say cloud computing i don't mean amazon i mean it could be on amazon but i don't mean like amazon ec2 i mean like having a desktop inside of your web browser that could actually be usable if we can run windows 98 i bet you we can find a way to run linux on it and for whatever it lacks today for however not useful it is today imagine what what the browsers of the future will, you know, might hold and effectively all you really need to do once you have this thing running is essentially stream the input back. You wouldn't even necessarily need to virtualize the entire system in electron, right? You could essentially stream that over a browser and allow like a cloud-based workspace, workstation rather. That's a really, I think it's a really cool uh, props to this developer for doing this. You really made my day. I'm not a, Not a big fan of Windows in general, but back in the 95 days and seeing that desktop pop up on my screen, that was a cool experience. So thank you for that. I just want to touch on this. Not going to spend a lot of time on it um, as we wind down, uh, we wind down the hour. But uh, Traction is a DAW specifically for recording and making music. So there are various different DAWs or digital audio workstations that are tailored to various things. Um. Kind of the go-to one in Linux is OurDoor, but OurDoor is kind of a it's it's a it's kind of a complicated software to learn, and it provides some difficulty for a lot of people. I know uh, recently Chris has started using Reaper for a lot of things, uh, which is a fantastic DAW. Uh, is very very close, if not identical, to Adobe Audition, but runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Also, nice thing about Reaper is that it uh, it's very low cost like it's just like 30 or 40 bucks I think to buy an actual license although it's kind of hard to actually find the place to download the thing um, they've made it easier recently but it's it's I still feel like the company kind of has like one foot half in the water so as tractor comes on to traction excuse me comes onto the market uh, for Linux and we'll have a link for you in the show notes where you can download it 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 really it speaks volumes to me for a number of reasons because we are starting to see major major software companies say if we're going to release software we need to release for all three platforms we need to release for Windows Mac and Linux and in no short order I assure you part of this part of this drive is the fact that things like Electron things like Snap packages things like Flatpaks are becoming a rea- reality for software developers and they're saying hey we can develop a, an Electron app and we can run that app and packages it a snap. We can run that app on Mac OS, we can run it on Windows and we can run it on Linux. Now the technology is designed on Linux, runs on Linux, was based in Linux, was born on Linux, but it can run anywhere and often does. So I think this is just the start of what is, uh, of what is eventually going to be a really big deal. Hey guys, did you know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and, ref- and material referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems, Ben, our producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com.